Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Episode 43 of The Bowery Boys. Studio 54. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, and welcome to The Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And this week we are hitting the dance floor. We're taking a time machine back to the 70s. And the 80s. And we're getting our groove on on 54th Street. Studio 54... You've all heard of it. The most famous disco, though it's not really a conventional New York City disco. What I mean by that is we had discos like the one in Saturday Night Fever, which was called 2001 Odyssey, which was, you know, for us normal folk to go, Mm -hmm. you know, in our bell bottoms and do our dancing. It wasn't like Paradise Garage, which was like a gigantic club where just anyone could get in. Studio 54 was an extravaganza. It was basically like gossip pages that came to life. It encapsulates all the decadence of the 1970s in New York City. The music is kind of beside the point. So, but Though still important, and I think we'll be talking about it today. Yes. But Studio 54 has a history behind the Velvet Rope. So uh, here's your VIP all-exclusive pass to our evening at Studio 54. Yes, I am in the mood. And here, I'm ready to dance. You are are ripping up the room here, Greg. You just need to put me there. Where is Studio 54? Situate this fabulous dance floor for me. Studio 54 on 54th Street, obviously, in New York, in between 8th Avenue and Broadway. If you think the Ed Sullivan Theater, where David Letterman tapes now, is on 53rd and Broadway, so you just kind of go up make a left, and, and there you are. And in this club, during the 1970s and 1980s, well, you could say it was the focal point of disco and glamour and late-night extravaganza. But it this is just the, from the 70s, but it was open, and it was a theater for many, many years before that. Do you, you have, uh, you have yeah. the little scoop on that, don't you? Exactly. Well, just like with anything else, in order to really understand tonight's topic, mm-hmm. we have to go back to Peter Stuyvesant. <laughs> 
and uh, you know, and the music that he listened to, right. and the dance grooves. He was really into Gaynor. <laughs> no, 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 no. This time we're only going back as far as February seventh, nineteen twenty-seven, when the theater was built and opened as the Gallo Opera House uh, by Fortune Gallo for the San Carlo Opera <sighs> Company. Opera. That's an interesting way. It to was start. an opera theater, I- right? The theater is not small. It has just over a thousand seats, five hundred down in the orchestra area, another about five hundred up in the mezzanine, and he opened with La Boheme, but it would actually be a big bomb. It didn't. <laughs> it didn't really work. And over the next fifteen years, there'd be several different incarnations of theaters, opera houses, venues. There, it would become the New Yorker Theater in nineteen thirty, uh, where Ibsen would play the Casino de Paris. In 1933, uh-huh. uh, which would actually be a dinner theater managed by the famous Billy Rose. <laughs> I don't know who Billy Rose is, but I'm just I'm shocked and amazed that it was all these different things. Oh in well, that wait, building. we're just getting started. The okay. Palladium Theater. Then in 1936, I mean times were also kind of hard, if you'll recall. So people were trying to make it work. The Federal Music Theater in 1939, and they staged a jazz rendition of Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado. <laughs> And and none of these worked. No, no, that didn't that didn't actually <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't catch fire. I fill the house in 1939. It turned back into the New Yorker Theater and remained that until 1942, when something very notable happened. Uh huh. It was actually sold to CBS. CBS bought the theater to set up their CBS Studio Number Fifty Two, Columbia Broadcasting System, in 1942, right. which would okay. have been, I guess, just a radio network. But the advent of TV is coming at this point. Yeah, but CBS had been around for a yeah. while with the radio broadcasts, and so they set up Studio Number Fifty Two. Now you're thinking Fifty Two, but it's on Fifty Fourth, and it's because. CBS was naming their studios in sequential order. So that 51 theaters before this. It's too bad that they didn't just hang off, you know, hang, <laughs> a hold on for more theaters. They could have yeah. really just made a lot more sense. That's right. But throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, then here in CBS studio number two would be taped some of it broadcast live sometimes some of the most beloved CBS television programs. And yes, such Which as ones? What's My Line? The $64,000 question, password, to tell the truth. I I mean, I don't remember these early incarnations, but some of these are very familiar game shows. Oh, but these were great. To tell the truth is amazing. Beat the Clock, The Jack Benny Show, and I've Got a Secret, among other ones. Uh I mean, these are classic shows that were filmed in this theater. In 1976, CBS was consolidating their New York productions uh, around the corner in the Ed Sullivan Theater, which Mm -hmm. they also owned, which was CBS TV Studio 50. Oh, and sending okay. other things out to um, out to Hollywood, so they decided to get rid of you know Studio Fifty Two. So what will you do with a big theater? I guess. Well, they started shopping it around to see who was interested in buying it, and they were even they in seventy six they were approaching some people in the art world, fashion world. The word was out that Studio Fifty Two was for sale, and that's where. That's where male model Uva Harden comes in. I was waiting for him to come in. I love a story that starts with a male model named Uva Harden. He came in, he actually had the original idea to have a disco in that particular space. So he brought in. Um, have you seen Password or something? 
Um, I don't think so. I think he's. I think he's. No, I don't think he's. I think he's from Europe. I don't think they had password there. So Uva brought in um, an investor who was a, a gallery owner by the name of Frank Lloyd, and he, they wanted to make a sort of futuristic state of the art club. Frank Lloyd was a gallery owner. He had a big gallery up on Fifty Seventh Street. However, unfortunately for Uva. Lloyd was got sued in oh. the 70s. It was a huge, huge headline-grabbing art world scandal. It involved the estate of Mark Rothko and basically the gross mishandling of, of paintings um, after Rothko's death. They actually, the headlines called him Frank Lloyd Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and his, so his reputation was ruined, but they, they went to court. He, had to, he lost $9.2 million. So if, naturally, he lose all this money. He has no reputation. And he had to pull out of the venture. So in sweeps um, another eccentric character, and her name was Carmen D'Alessio. Uh, she is sort of the self-described creator of Studio 54, if you were to ask her today. And Carmen was a PR agent, right? A PR agent, a very exotic Peruvian jet setter. I mean, just one Glamour. of these glamorous characters. She's basically quotes her, she's quoted as saying, I know everybody, the beautiful, the rich, they are all my friends. So she gets involved with this, and anything that she touches, it becomes her project. She gets involved and inv- involves, um, suggests a duo that she's been working with in Queens. They're the college friends by the name of Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager. They are actually restaurateurs. They manage a franchise of steak lofts throughout the city Excuse in the me, 70s. Steak, steak lofts? Steak lofts. With an F? <laughs> like... Steak lofts, okay. as in like getting and going into a loft and eating a steak. Right. <laughs> so, Sounds appetizing. So they were so those steak lofts is what they were doing. They also had a club in Queens called the Enchanted Garden, which was actually kind of a kind of a fabulous little place. But it was out in Queens. They had some problem with the city parks department. Uh, it was next to a golf course, and they were throwing these wild parties. So they were basically kicked out. But these parties were hot and had actually they were, yes achieved quite a bit of publicity. I think they were profiled in Newsweek magazine, in fact. Yeah, and Carmen actually um, promoted parties there as well. So anyway, she decided they were ready for Manhattan. So she brings them to into the city. They, they see the space. They love it. Then they decide to renovate it. Carmen actually is consulted to help design some of the club. She gives it a little bit of its exotic, debauched quality, if you will. <laughs> the renovation... Only t- it took less than a million dollars to renovate the inside of that. I guess it doesn't take that much. Now, luckily, part of the key to the success here, not to give her too much, not to pat, pat her back, but she was the, a great party promoter. And this was the era of celebrity gossip, as we mentioned in our New York Post podcast. Episode 41. We had, the, was the opening of page six was in, in 1976. And Cindy Adams and Liz Smith and all the other gossip denizens would be there. So what, Car- yeah, so what Carmen decided that what she needed for opening night was to cram it mm. with celebrities. And as she says, she knows everybody. So she crams it. She has hand-sent invitations sent to thousands of people. Thousands of people, as you'll see. So the opening was on April 26, 1977. Doors opened at 9 p.m. It is so crowded. So many people show up. So many... Famous people, so many, everyone who had invitations. That by midnight, it was so packed, so many people couldn't get in. So, can you tell us who some of these people were who were showing up and who who Frank, got in? Fra- who well, was well, Fra- okay, Frank Sinatra didn't get in. Oof. Brooke Shields yes. got in. 
Mick Jagger didn't get in. Oof. Donald Trump did get in. <laughs> so these, so it this was, was the throng. So the next day in the papers, it was splashed all over, and and Cher was was there, and it was even in some of the papers the next day. She got in. She got in. Now back to Brooke Shields. I think it bears noting that she was eleven when she got in. It isn't like she was. Brooke Shields oh, yeah. was eleven and working the door with Robin Leach. They were reporting <laughs> from from the door. It's it's that's of, a really incredible. Eleven years old. It was a historical moment, and they knew it. And they knew well. They knew it, and so to keep the momentum going, they designed these lavish and kind of novelty parties. The most famous, which and probably one of the most famous nights in night New York City nightlife history. I I, I don't think I can underscore that enough. Was in May of, the next month of May of nineteen seventy seven with the birthday party of Bianca Jagger. Famously, Bianca didn't just come in to her own birthday party. She didn't just walk through the door. She came in. She was there were two nude people painted in gold. There's a lot of nudity in this podcast by the way. We apologize. Tom and I are wearing clothes. Uh two nude people painted in gold pulling a white horse and Jagger was on top of the horse and doves were released in the in the dance club. That sounds like a mess to me, but they released all these doves and surrounding her were all these celebrities like Liza Minnelli and Halston, Diana Vreeland, Barishnikov. It was just such a crazy scene. It was, I mean, it was just so outlandish and they were report, you know, there were reporters there and, and, photo- and there was a photographer. So all these, all this news came into the papers. So you mean the this day. made, this was buzz worthy? Yes. Well, the funny thing is in, in the history of nightclubs since then, a lot of crazy things like this have happened, but this was the headline grabber. This was the one that truly like sought out outrageousness in mm-hmm. the things that they a- attempted to do. So before we get too swept up inside, the club let's pull back and approach the club yes, let's uh, yes let's try to get in line and see sort of what's going on here be- because it really wasn't that easy to get in the, the, <laughs> no, obviously no. the studio 54 had a very strict door policy and the bouncer was instructed to make the perfect toss salad the salad the salad philosophy was a they wanted a good balanced mix not of, of celebrities yes well as, not as he said not too many tomatoes Enough roughage. So, so let they uh, some celebrities. They wanted beautiful people, beautiful people, beautiful nobodies, and some sort of and some oddballs thrown in, right? Just to create some the croutons. Mix. So the doorman was named Mark Benneke, and he was actually in his early twenties when he was hired to do the door. He he actually became more synonymous than Ian Schrager with the identity of Studio Fifty Four, as they like to say. Even Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager probably couldn't even get into their own club. <laughs> well, that's often the case. But Steve Rubelda was always there. He was quite often very visible, loving to party, loving his quaaludes, loving the coke, loving the glamour. But he would also come sometimes go outside and help handpick people. Well, there was a, there's a very famous story, as a matter of fact. There was a, a man that came up, and Steve was like, I don't like that shirt. It's ugly. So the guy took his shirt off, and he had this like beautiful muscular chest. He was like, 
okay, you can get in. So that was that was a superficial sort of policy. However, another time, somebody tried to pull the same thing. A woman showed up naked on horseback, and he turned her away, but let the horse in. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, well, she was trying to pull a, Bian- you know, a Bianca thing, and they were like, oh, it's already been done. But the horse is a nice-looking horse, so we'll let the horse in. And according so- to our sources, the horse has behaved itself. They, you know, Beneke was like, the people were bribing him with offers of sex, with money, anything to get in. One man in a black tie suit decided that he was just going to get in anyway. They turned him down at the door. So he tried to crawl through a vent and he died in the oh. vent. So he died literally trying to get in. Um, some, of course, didn't even bother. Like Michael Musto's often quoted as saying that he would just stand outside the whole night and just sit there and watch the celebrities as they come in. Well, and others are read said, you know, the the line would move forward toward the, the, the bouncer. When you finally made your way up to the bouncer, if they weren't recognizing you, if they weren't looking at you and letting you in, you were done. There was no use standing there anymore. Oh, you yeah, had you been might, rejected. Yeah. You might as well just move on. Yes. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. But the celebrities, Tom. So this. The, so you get in. You get Let's in. We get in. Well, and celebrities, by the way, many of them were entering through the VIP entrance, which which was around the corner on Fifty Third Street. They wouldn't all come they didn't in. Didn't have to. Main. Yeah. Right. They didn't have to pull a share. And- Whatever. Right. So there was a hallway that you walk down. You, you pass the admission. You pass the coat check. And so you walk into the main dance floor. Now, these are some of the celebrities. Oh, tell me who we're going to see. That you might have seen. Some of the, the regular stable of celebrities. I mean, they would almost be here all the time. Elizabeth Taylor, Liza Minnelli, Truman Capote, Andy Warhol. Um, some more wacky celebrities. You have Betty Ford. <laughs> no, she wasn't there all the time, but she was. But she was there. She was. She was there. Zsa Zsa Gabor, Elton John, Calvin Klein, O.J. Simpson, Lillian Carter. <laughs> yeah, the, the president's mother, mother was there. Betty Davis, Salvador Dali. So these were just. I mean, every sort of like unusual celebrity you can possibly think of made their appearance here at Studio 54. And then to just top it all off was Grace Jones, who would actually arrive at the club. You know when you have like a hard time finding something to wear? Well, she would just come to the club naked. She would wear nothing to the club. <laughs> Again, this reoccurring theme. They just stripped down, but if you're, it, yeah. splashed on some glitter. Glitter and just walk in nude. But... You know, apparently she did it so often, like it was like it was like she w- would go naked all the time that some became rather bored with her. 
could you imagine? Oh, there's Grace Jones naked again. Oh, clothes I couldn't on, be more bored. Jaja. So we've got a naked Grace Jones. We've got Lillian Carter. We've got others dancing. Let's just say that they're not off in some VIP area. Let's say that they're on the dance floor well, yeah, for the well, sake of well, argument. Some of right them, now. you know, some of them are off doing drugs. Some of them are drinking. Some of them are converse, conversating. Right, but conversing. <laughs> and let's just say that they're dancing on the dance floor, which would be where the old orchestra seats were for the for the theater. So the seats have been taken away. The dance floor is there. The balcony remains a balcony, though it's been covered with plywood, and there are tables up there where people can have bar service and where there are other, well... Sundry things going on. Activities taking place. Mm-hmm. On the stage, then, you had performances. You would have, like, D- Donna Summer, G- Gloria Gaynor, the village people, all perform there. Big, big banks of lights that were... some. The lights over the dance floor were run by electronic machines, but over the um, on the stage, they were actually run the old-fashioned way with men on pulleys who were like bringing them up and down and doing spectacular light shows. And above, of course, the dance floor, you had this giant sign. It was a cutout moon, a man in the moon, the with, in the moon. with a spoon. <laughs> and the spoon, we can only interpret it well, as the spoon being a was, cocaine the spoon. The spoon was filled with cocaine and was being moved it would be hoisted, back and forth right. to the moon's nose. <laughs> and there was a sort of series of lights that would light up as it went into his nose. This isn't one of our regular podcasts, is it? <laughs> but it is history, Greg. This is living history. history. Cocaine spoons is history. Man on the moon. Well, the, I will, we'll tell you a little bit at the end of the podcast what happened to that gigantic cocaine spoon and the moon but the music they're on the edge of their chairs but everyone is listening to the the great music of studio 54 there is a misnomer though that studio 54 is sort of a legendary and edgy discotheque now a lot of great songs would debut at studio 54 being a centerpiece for music but uh you know it's also considered to be rather a mainstream at the time a lot of it was an underground disco it wasn't stuff that would influence music in the 80s it was like the stuff that they would play on the on the radio things like that they they weren't breaking any rules they weren't really breaking any musical rules no the resident dj was richie kaxer but uh another dj who also played there several times was legendary dj nikki siano Mm -hmm. who who had started out with them started out with them and was one of new york's best djs and is still uh, one of the great revered music djs he was hired but eventually he was let go because he was too underground you know wondering again where these people were the celebrities weren't necessarily i imagine that they were down on the dance floor Floor, but mm-hmm. they were also, and there were banquettes, by the way, around the dance floor where, you know, the celebrities would sometimes sit and other people would just get drink service. But I would say primarily they were probably upstairs in the VIP area, right? In the so-called rubber room. Oh, yes. They were probably in the upstairs doing whatever they were doing. Probably not in the basement where a lot of... Um Seedier activity, sex, and all sorts of uh, all sorts of other extravagances. All, all sorts of blue activities were going on. Uh, Nor were they probably up on the catwalks, which were intended to be, of course, for the the men working the lights uh, during the different light shows. But they were also f- favorite areas for people doing <laughs> <laughs> these other activities. So the club opens in April of 77, and it's just a great success. It's an immediate success and sensation. Yes. How long does it 
ride that wave of popularity. Well, I'm referring to this heyday, the Rubel Schrager heyday. Believe it or not, the whole thing doesn't even last three years. Mm. So Steve Rubel is basically the out front host, the one who's entertaining everyone, the, the one who's the face of the club. He was even on the cover of Andy Warhol's interview magazine. He is the face of Studio 54. Schrager almost becomes a silent partner, uh, sort of drifts into the background. And he's much more involved with this styling, the styling for the different parties. Yes. And, you know, I mean, Rubel was poor kid from Brooklyn. He was, he was gay. Schrager was a little bit more straight-laced, and he was also straight. There was sort of like a nightlife Abbott and Costello, if you will. Mm-hmm. Rubel got this thrill from controlling celebrities, and he claimed to be able to get them anything that they wanted. Anything. Even if that meant the busboy? Especially if that meant the busboy. There were <laughs> I mean, plenty of busboys yes, to be I mean, had. And as we said, and as you can guess from a giant cook spoon, there was rampant drug use throughout the club, and Rubel himself had a serious problem. On top of that, there was some embezzlement going on, but the very nature of the place was sort of based on some law-breaking. Money was not being reported into the IRS. Well, in December of 78, Rubel bragged to the press that the club had actually made $7 million in its first year. Well, they were soon arrested after that for for skimming $2.5 off the top. On December 14th of 1978, the feds raided the club. They actually found gigantic bags of trash, trash bags full of money. They arrested Schrager on a coke possession charge, but then this all ends up rolling into some serious charges. I have a very funny anecdote. So the, the feds literally raid the club, like people are like whatever, screaming, whatever. Who happens to be there that night but Dolly Parton? <laughs> and Dolly was there when the club was raided, and she actually had to climb down a five-story fire escape to get out of there so that no. she, the feds wouldn't catch her. I mean, I don't think she, she made do- it down, right? I think so. But I mean, just imagine that Dolly Parton, big hair, big. But just. Oh my. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know if she was doing anything, but you know, it's just that panic of like people rushing out. So. So if she ran down five floors, she must have been really way up at the top in the rubber room. Oh yeah, well she was a you know she was a very important person. In 1979, Rubel and Schrager were found guilty of embezzlement of skimming more than two point five million dollars. They both went to prison. They originally had a sentence of three and a half years, though it was commuted to thirteen months for assisting the feds. Um, but of course, being that these were the Studio Fifty Four guys, they of course went out with a bang. The gigantic going away party that was called the end of modern day Gamora. It was held on February 4th, 1980. And everybody who was anybody was there. It's Richard Gere, Reggie Jackson, Diana Ross. Andy Warhol. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, who actually is supposed to have bought the last cocktail. I don't know how I they know. I love that. I saw that one too. <laughs> I don't know why they, how they know that kind of stuff. But anyway, that's the legend. So then they, they were shipped off to prison, but... The club is still around in other forms. Well, I think the liquor license was lost soon after that because they weren't around, you know, to renew it. But <laughs> right. on September 12th, 1981, Studio 54 Round 2 was reopened by Philip Pilevsky and run by Mark Fleischman. He was a hotel owner also. And the opening night, again, was packed with celebrities. Andy Warhol was back. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just a year later. But you had the so eight, but you, okay, right. It still got, they managed to get the right people there again. Andy Brooke came back. I guess she was, <laughs> what, by now? 16? 16. I don't know. <laughs> 
Calvin Klein and the others. And over the next six years, it would see, again, all of these important people. So it was still open. Tom Cruise. Right. And according to another report that we both saw, um, One Night Alone in 1983, Madonna, Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Boy George, Janet Jackson, George Michael were all there. But the thing, but what's missing is the, and what's critical about that is this, like the buzz is missing. This sort of the, the early decadence, the the legend, the right. legend the, of the Studio salad 54. was off. This, there was no salad anymore, or there was right. no dressing, <laughs> or something was wrong. Something was missing because, even though you know the the Studio Fifty Four, the second round was open until nineteen eighty six. It closed in March, but it had a lot of competition from other clubs, bigger clubs, things clubs that were doing more exciting things. And the scene had changed. You Absolute, know, the yeah. city had changed, and the scene had changed, and it just wasn't quite working anymore. So it was done in eighty six. From eighty nine to ninety three, it was called the Ritz. Do you remember that at all? Um, it was it was right before I moved here, but the it they, was the, it they was had a, rock concerts yes. and it, it was, was just a stage, a performance area. But then we were back in 1994 for Studio 54 Round Three. Oh, how was this one? Well, it was <laughs> it was bought for five and a half million dollars in '94. Was restored. Uh, this time they showed all the old theatrical detail that had been covered over oh, by the guys. Nice. So they ripped off the plywood, and the opening night party. Guess who was there? Um, let's see if this is the 90s. <laughs> who has it got to be? Members of NSYNC. <laughs> the opening night performances were by Gloria Gaynor, Vicky Sue Robinson, and Sister oh, Sledge. They're, so they they're, were, are, they're doing retro. Right. They were reaching retro. back. Okay. And uh, it closed in 96. Now, as luck would have it soon thereafter, the Broadway musical Cabaret was down on 43rd Street, West 43rd, oh, and then with, Henry Miller. With uh, Alan Cumming, Natasha Richardson. Yes, that brilliant, was fabulous. Brilliant performance. Um, and a construction hoist collapsed and sort of blocked the entrance to the theater. So they had to move it, and the Roundabout Theater Company, uh, which was producing Cabaret, entered into an agreement then with the current owners of Studio 54 to uh, to move the show up there because they had restored it to its old theatrical glory, which is a perfect place for that particular show because I believe that the, I, I believe that Kanderneb originally wanted it performed in a nightclub, and so here was in the king. Of here nightclubs. was a nightclub slash theater. And who would star in Cabaret while it was playing at Studio Fifty Four? None other. Then Brooke Shields. Oh, no way. <laughs> she comes back and then... A third wow. time. It always happens And now I guess three. she's older than 18 by this point, so... The, but r- interestingly, Robin Leach was not co-starring <laughs> with her. I'd love to see Robin Leach as the MC. Welcome mm. Anyway, so... But the Roundabout Theater is still there. They're showing great productions there. Sunday in the Park with George is there now. Currently, and uh, what we saw that Pal Joey is Yeah, started. a revival of Pal Joey will be there. And by the way, they, they sometimes have parties upstairs at, fi- at 54 there still like, on fact, occasion. In fact, isn't it called Upstairs at 54? Yes, yes. that is correct. The torch, believe it or not, is actually being carried all the way over to Las Vegas, mm-hmm. where they have, they have a Studio 54 there. That, my friends, is where the Man in the Moon and the Coke Spoon went. They transferred it to the Studio 54 in Las Vegas. Now, the Vegas Studio 54 is five times the size of the original Studio 54. Like everything in Vegas, it's just big and tacky. And everyone can get in. 
And now there's a sec- a second or, or third location, depending on what you consider the roundabout. Uh, in Berlin, there's now also a Studio 54. It's a name that seems to have been somewhat franchised. It's a it's it's lost its luster clearly. And oh. well, just to just to highlight sort of the, the difference, I went to the website for the Berlin Studio 54 today and looked in the history section. Steve Rebell's name is misspelled throughout the entire thing. That brings up finally whatever really happened to Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager. Well, sadly. Um, Rubel died in 1989. Um, you know, they both got out of prison and he was never really able to pick things up and he died of complications with AIDS and he was age 46. Schrager is now a multimillionaire hotelier. With famous hotels around the world, top-notch boutique hotels here in New York. Yeah, some of them. Yeah, the London. You have the Morgans. You have the Royalton. You have the Hudson Hotel. I mean, some really glamorous hotels. I mean, he's he's become to hotels what he was for nightclubs in the seventies, but they weren't like they weren't Euro cheapo kind of hotels. These are Euro. Hey. These are Euro expensive hotels, aren't they? Uh, well, thank you for the plug, Greg. <laughs> but actually, we do in our, in the guide to New York. We do list a Hudson because you can sometimes find an affordable oh, room there. The Hudson is amazing. It's like a it's, it's a, like it's a, a fairy place, tale place. Yeah. It's great. But even when you go into the Hudson, when you go into these Schrager hotels, you can just. I mean, obviously, you note the attention to detail and the styling that goes into it, the theatricality of it. You can imagine what a nightclub would have been like were the same energy and passion the same was attention, applied. Right. Right. Well, his in 2005, he bought and renovated the Gramercy Park Hotel, naturally on Gramercy Park, equally as glamorous and equally full of celebrity stories because this is a brand new version of a, of a hotel that Babe Ruth used to drink at all the time after his games. He'd get trashed down at the bar and the hotel that Humphrey Bogart got married in. Wow. We've wound our way from a night out on a town to now we're back in our swanky hotel room in Gramercy Park. So thank you for joining us on our slightly perverse tour of the history of Studio yeah, Rated R. Lots of sex and drugs and nudity. Um, visit our website at BoweryBoysPodcast.com for all little extra updates uh, three or four times during the week on, on topics we cover on the show and just things that are happening in the news. And of course, we always ask you to send us your comments, suggestions, corrections. Our email addresses are on the website at BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. We'll have another great episode next week. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.